Throughout this weekend together, Friday night, this morning and this evening, we've been thinking about the big story of the Old Testament. Um, uh, when you come to the Bible, you can see that it's made up of lots of different books, lots of different people, lots of different times and lots of different experiences. And whether you read in um, Kings or in Lamentations or whatever you want to read in the Old Testament, sometimes it can be easy to get a bit lost and to struggle to know exactly where we are and what's going on. And um, that's why it can be helpful to think through the big story of the Old Testament, because there really is one big story running through it all. And it's good to see how that fits together, because it helps us understand the Old Testament more clearly. But it's even more important to see that, because it helps us to recognise that it's all pointing to Jesus. That everything that's taking place in the Old Testament is a signpost directing us forward to the fullness of God's plan as they are revealed and accomplished through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking together at some of these big moments. Um, On Friday evening we thought about Moses and the Exodus, seeing how God's saving plan was worked out through an incredible demonstration of his power. This morning we thought about (coughs) King David and how he was the model king in the Old Testament. (coughs) Um, But even he wasn't perfect. And after him came a, a, a line of kings who were nowhere near perfect either. All of whom, though, were pointing to God's true king, <coughs> Jesus, the ultimate ruler and defender of his people. This evening, um, we're going to think a little bit uh, about events that took place around the life uh, of Jeremiah. And to do that, um, I'd like us just to turn uh, to one of the most famous verses in the whole of the Old Testament that you'll find just a few pages back from Lamentations in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 29, (coughs) we'll read verses 10 and 11. And... um, We'll eventually get back to this verse uh, as we go through our sermon tonight, um, but we'll, um, we'll read it and then we'll go back to some of the other passages that we read. Let me, however, read Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 11 is one of the most famous and most loved verses um, in the Old Testament. Um, and, And it's an incredible verse when you read it on its own. It's even more incredible when you read it in the context of the big story of the Old Testament. We're going to ask four questions, the same four questions that we asked on Friday and that we asked this morning. What's the story so far? What's the story at this point? What's the bigger story? And what does it mean for your story? So, what's the story so far? Well, this is challenging because we're near the end of the Old Testament. So the story so far is pretty much the whole of the Old Testament apart from a little bit 
Um, so we've got to cover uh, the entire Old Testament in about 90 seconds. Um, let's see if we can do it. Um, I don't know how vivid your imagination is, but as try as much as you can to, to picture in your mind what I'm about to describe to you. Um, bear in mind that as I do this, um, I'm giving you like, like the time-lapse version, you know, when you, when you, when you watch a time-lapse video that's, that's what, say, the clouds, the sunsets or whatever, uh, and many, many hours are compressed into a few seconds. Well, we're going to compress many, many centuries uh, into a few seconds. But please try and just, if you want to close your eyes, please do, or if you can just, um, just imagine in your mind, um, I don't mind. But let your mind think things through as we go through this together. In the beginning, God speaks, and the universe explodes into existence. Stars appear, billions of them. Planets emerge, galaxies form. The universe is created as a mass, an extraordinary mass of energy and potential. Near one of those stars, there's a planet where dry land is separated from the sea. Mountains are made. Rivers begin to flow. Trees and plants shoot up from the ground. Fish start to swim. Birds fly. And animals run on the face of the earth. It's a stunning, thriving habitat of colour, beauty and life. And the climax of it all is humanity. Men and women made in the image of God, placed on this beautiful planet to enjoy the stunning homeland that God has made. And so from the stars to the sun to planet Earth to the seas, the mountains, the plants, the animals, it all builds up to the creation of people made to glorify and enjoy God forever. And humanity stands on that threshold of all these extraordinary blessings that God has provided. And at that moment, when everything is so good, humanity looks at God and spits in his face. Humanity sins and rebels against God, rejecting him as creator and ruler and brings a curse onto all creation. The great family of humanity is, is broken. It was created by God to live in this beautiful homeland and to thrive in fellowship with God, with one another, with the environment, and now it's all a broken mess. Humanity is alienated from God hostile to one another, now humanity lives in a battleground. God's beautiful creation has been broken. Humanity has rejected its creator. And we know that all of that's true. Because we suffer. We see people suffering. We only have to watch the news for 30 seconds to know that the world is broken. But the story of the Old Testament is that God 
does not give up. God does not give up. And in the midst of the brokenness and chaos, he calls a man, Abraham, a man who lived in the deserts of Arabia. And God brings him west. And in his amazing grace, not because of anything Abraham deserves, all of God's generosity, God promises Abraham a son and promises him a land to live him live in and he promises Abraham that through his descendants all the nations of the world are going to be blessed God's purposes are going to be fulfilled after years of waiting the son that son that was promised is finally born and he then has a son who has more sons and the children of Abraham grow into a great clan but that clan is forced into slavery in Egypt They're oppressed by the Egyptians, but they still grow. Now they're as big as a nation. And God calls Moses to lead the people out of slavery and into the land promised to their ancestor, Abraham. In a mighty display of God's power, this vast family nation escapes from Egypt. And now they're free. They're given God's great Ten Commandments, showing them how they are to live as his people. How they are to stand out from the rest of the world. After 40 years as nomads in the desert, they finally enter the promised land. But in doing so, they fail to drive out their enemies. They fail to conquer the people who already lived there. And instead, they start living alongside them. And they're constantly tempted to become like these nations. They were commanded to conquer. Instead, they compromised. They were expected to be different, but all they wanted to do was blend in. God wanted to be in a covenant relationship with them, but all too often for these Israelites, being in covenant with God became inconvenient to them. But still, God does not give up. He made Abraham into a family. He made that family into a nation. He gave that nation a land. And eventually that nation became a kingdom. David, as we saw this morning, was their great model king. The man after God's own heart. The man to whom it was promised that his descendants would remain on the throne. Everything looked good. But it didn't last From David onwards, it gradually fell apart. David was succeeded by Solomon. Solomon was succeeded by Rehoboam. When Rehoboam became king, Israel divided. A northern kingdom of ten tribes called Israel, a southern kingdom of two tribes called Judah. The north, Israel, was ruled by a succession of different dynasties. The capital was in Samaria. All of the kings were bad. The south, Judah, was ruled by the Davidic line. David's children and his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. Some of them were good kings. Most of them were failures. None of them were quite like David. The north was conquered by Assyria in 722 BC in the days of Isaiah the prophet. The south was progressively conquered by Babylon in the 20 years leading up to 586 BC. In the days of Jeremiah. And what that means 
is that if you stood in Jerusalem in the year 586 BC, you would be standing in a city in ruins. Most of the inhabitants have been taken away as captives. That great family nation of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses and David, that great family is history. The people of God are in exile. In fact, they're all the way back in the land that God had called Abraham out of 1,500 years earlier. And we were saying on Friday evening, and we were saying again this morning, that when you think about Old Testament history, it really is a downward line. It's not a positive story when you go through the Old Testament. It's a negative one. The trajectory is downward. And so you can imagine a, a line that's just going down, 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 down. Now at times there's glimmers of hope where that line just spikes up a wee bit. Abraham, Moses, David. It looks good for a while, but then it quickly deteriorates. The line is going down, 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 down as you move through the Old Testament. The exile, the passages that we read are the lowest point. This is the low point of Old Testament history. At this point in the story, everything looks as though God really has given up. So what is going on at this point? What's the story at this point? We read two passages that each describe the same thing. The first was from 2 Kings 24 and 25. That's the passage that you go to to get the facts of the situation. It tells you all the details, days, months, years, all these things, um, the times, the places, everything. Now, the exile was a culmination of about a 20-year period um, leading up to 586 BC. Um, much of it starts in 605 BC, um, because that's the year when Babylon became the dominant empire in the ancient Near East. Prior to that, um, the Assyrians uh, had really been the dominant empire, but they've been on the kind of um, they've been losing power over a period of time, and the Babylonians were becoming stronger and stronger. In 605 there's a battle that's not mentioned in the Bible but which is very important in terms of history called the Battle of Carchemish um, and that was the battle when Babylon defeated a coalition of the Assyrians and the Egyptians and in the aftermath of that battle it basically cemented Nebuchadnezzar as the, and the Babylons as the dominant world power. After that battle, and in some of the aftermath of it, there were some Israelite hostages taken, and among those would have been Daniel. So that's around 605 BC. Then, uh, eight years later, 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes again. He comes and he wants to take over Judah properly. And so he captures Jerusalem, he takes the king, Jehoiachin, hostage, and he places another king, Zedekiah, on the throne in his place. And the idea of that was that, that 
you know, Zedekiah had been made king, but really it's the Babylonians that who are, who are in charge. And we call that a vassal king. Um, Zedekiah had no authority or independence uh, on his own. More hostages were taken back to Babylon, and among them was Ezekiel. But you remember from what we read um, that Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon. I'll go through it again just to make sure you're with me because all these names are weird and confusing. So I'll just go through it again just to make sure that you've got it okay. 605, Nebuchadnezzar is the big dog, the new guy in charge of the world. So he comes in 597 and he yanks one king out of Jerusalem and he places another uh, instead of him. And that new king, Zedekiah, is really under the control of the Babylonians. But after a while, Zedekiah thinks, oh, I think I might be king again. I think I might do my own thing. And so he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. In response, Nebuchadnezzar returns with the Babylonian army around 588. And for two years, they laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, basically what that meant was they surrounded the city... And nothing got in and nothing came out. And the consequence of that is that Jerusalem slowly starved to death. And in 586, Jerusalem fell. We read that um, in 2 Kings 25. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, it was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burnt down and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. In 597, Jerusalem was captured. In 586, Jerusalem was destroyed. Second Kings gives us the facts. The other passage we read, though, was Lamentations. Lamentations is a collection of poems written in the aftermath of 586, um, probably written by Jeremiah. And Lamentations is crucial for understanding the story at this point. Second Kings gives us the facts. Lamentations tells us how it felt. We read from chapter 1. Let me read the first couple of verses again. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Now, as you read those words, you have to imagine standing in a city of ruins. How like a widow she's become. And she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile. I don't know what your favourite building in the world is. Imagine a famous building that you've been to. I went uh, to London for my summer holidays and we stood in, in St Paul's Cathedral. It was incredible. And you've probably been to, to um, some astonishing buildings um, 
Imagine, I don't know, a building you've been to that's, that's really impressive and now imagine standing in that building and it's a heap of rubble. Imagine standing in Ibrox or Celtic Park and it's a heap of rubble. Edinburgh Castle, heap of rubble. Buckingham Palace, heap of rubble. That's exactly what the people of Jerusalem experienced. And if you go and read the rest of Lamentations, it's a hard read. It describes the horror of the situation in very vivid, very powerful terms. And we can only touch on these very briefly. I just want to highlight some of the things that Lamentation speaks of. Number one, famine and destruction. Jerusalem was in ruins, the people in desperate poverty. Two, loneliness and separation. Everyone was taken into exile, apart from the poorest and the weakest who were left behind. That meant that families were torn apart. So if you think about it, um, you know, what the Babylonians would have done, they want to go and take the strong, fit and capable, and they want to leave the weak and vulnerable behind. So imagine, imagine you... Imagine you are in the prime of life, working, ready to serve, you, your wife, your children, you've got teenage children, they're all strong, healthy, but you've got an elderly mother who cannot survive without you. Babylonians come and they yank the young ones away and they leave your mum to die. Families were torn apart. All that remained was the most frail, elderly, young There's also, thirdly, betrayal and shame. When you read through Lamentations, you can see just how ashamed, that sense of shame and failure. Because the people realised that this was their own doing. They realised that they had made the mistake of thinking that instead of relying on God, they could rely on other nations like the Egyptians or whoever who might come and help them. But when the Babylonians finally arrived, nobody came to help. The people felt betrayed. There was this huge sense of shame. You look at verse 7 of Lamentations. It says, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of her foe, there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. And the last thing that, 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 that... Lamentation speaks of, well, the last thing I want to highlight is that it talks about memories. Jerusalem remembers what was going on. The community, the security, the prosperity, the joy that the city once knew is now only a memory. Now, what has any of this got to do with us? What's it got to do with life today? In 2021, it can feel a million miles from tomorrow morning for you and for me. Well, I wanted to say two things very, very quickly. One is that when we read about the exile, as we do here, or when we read about any devastating event in history, we've got to remember that although that happened a long, long time ago, and although it happened far away, it's still talking about people. We must never forget that. 
And what's even more important to remember is that although we read Lamentations 1 and we think, oh, that's ancient history and a million miles from how we live, it is the case that for some people, for many people in the world today, Lamentations 1 is probably the most relevant chapter in the whole Bible. Because they live in the same kind of suffering. When we hear about the facts of suffering in Ukraine or Syria or Yemen or Somalia or whatever, God forbid that we ever forget how that must feel for the people who are there. Second thing is that we are thousands of miles and we're thousands of years from the facts of 2 Kings 24 and 25. But I am pretty sure that for many of us, the feelings of Lamentations 1 are a lot more close at hand. So we might not be living in famine, our homes might not be a pile of rubble, but maybe you feel like your life has fallen apart, or that it's about to fall apart, or that it might fall apart at any moment. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you're surrounded by people at work or in your community, and yet you feel totally isolated, that nobody really cares about you, that no one has an interest in you. Maybe you're separated from people that you love. Maybe you're grieving for people that you desperately miss. Maybe you feel ashamed of yourself. Maybe you just can see mistakes that you've made in your lives that, that if people know about, you feel a huge sense of shame. And, and, and if they don't know about it, you've got a huge sense of fear that they might find out. Maybe you've been betrayed by somebody you loved and trusted and that you thought would look after you. Or maybe it's the case that the things that you long for most are memories of days that are never coming back. The story of the Old Testament reaches its lowest point here at the exile. And if you've had a rubbish week, or a really hard month, or an awful year, maybe this is the point in the story of the Old Testament where God is talking to you. And one of the things that he's saying is that whatever it is that you're going through, God knows the facts. And God knows how you feel. Which takes us to our third question. What's the bigger story? Well, we said a few minutes ago that the exile is the point when it really looks like God's given up. Everything is a mess. The family's broken, the nation's defeated, the land is occupied, the temple's a heap, the kingdom's been crushed. Where is God in it all? Well, Lamentations tells us a couple of crucial things, and you can see them in verses 18 and 21. Uh, of Lamentations 1. Verse 18 says that the Lord is in the right. And verse 21 says that God has brought the day that he announced. Now that's crucial because it's reminding us that, that, that all of this is what God had warned. He had told the people that this was going to happen if they continually turned away from him. That was a key part of his covenant promises, that if they abandoned God, God's covenant, they would lose the privileges that they've been that they had been given. And the key point that we take from that is the fact that this devastation in Jerusalem 
And this exile was not a sign that God was abandoning his covenant promises. It was actually a sign that he was sticking to them. Because he was just doing the very thing that he had warned. And that's why the people who stood in Jerusalem were not standing there saying, why did God allow this to happen? The people in Jerusalem were standing there saying, why didn't we listen? But if God had warned that this was going to happen, and if God was right to allow this to happen, what's going to happen now? What's the bigger story? What's going to come after the lowest low point of all the downward catastrophe of the Old Testament? Well, I want you to imagine that there was Facebook in the days of Lamentations. Okay? So imagine that long, long ago the Facebook existed, um, and they all were able to get on their phones and find a signal and they were able to post some of this on Facebook and they were able to upload some of the destruction uh, photos of what had happened uh, and you were able to post a comment on how you're feeling. You know, so you took a photo of your house and you said just um, awful destruction, feeling horrendous. What kind of things do you think people would say to you in the comments section below? What would people tend to say? Well, I'm sure people would want to offer comfort and help and, 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 and that, and I, I think people would do that. But I think it's also very likely that people would say what they think you would want to hear. Isn't that what very often happens now on Facebook or whatever? Something happens and people respond to that by telling us what we want to hear. And that's exactly what happened uh, here um, in the days of Lamentations and of the days of Jeremiah. It didn't happen on Facebook, but it did happen. The people had been taken into exile. And not long after they arrived, some people began to prophesy and say, it's okay, we're going to be back in Jerusalem in a couple of years. So you can read that in Jeremiah 28. That's what they were saying couple of years then we'll be back this isn't going to last long don't worry and of course that was exactly what the people wanted to hear but it wasn't true and Jeremiah's one of Jeremiah's jobs was to go and say these prophets are not prophets at all this isn't going to be over in two years and so Jeremiah had to write a letter, and we read about that letter at the start of Jeremiah 29. And so if you just flick back to that, um, I'd li I would like to read that one if that's okay. So you flick back to Jeremiah 29. And I'll read just the first, um, first nine verses, it's not long, I'll just read it. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then you can nip down to verse 4. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. In other words, don't listen to the ones who are saying this is going to be over in a couple of years. And do not listen to the dreams they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now the key thing to notice here is that the people had gone into exile because of their deafness. They had refused to listen to God. Now they're in danger of responding to the exile with blindness. God made it clear that, that this, this kind of like, oh, it's all going to be fine. What the people want to hear was not what was going to happen. The exile would not be over in two years. The people had to settle down and get on with life because the situation was not going to change anytime soon. And you think, well, that's, that's, like, that's an even lower low point. But that's not all that God said. Because then he goes on to say what is one of the most famous statements in the whole of the Old Testament. Read on in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans of welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And I hope you can see how incredible this is because God is giving them such an amazing promise. Promise of future, promise of restoration, promise of hope. It's one of the most precious promises in the whole of the Old Testament. And when did God give it? When did this promise come? When things were at their very worst. When the nation looked at its most broken. That's when God comes with one of the most precious sentences in the whole of scripture. And that plan for a future and a hope wasn't just a plan for them to get back to Jerusalem. It was the plan that God had had from the very moment when humanity spat in his face. It's the plan that runs right through the Old Testament. It's the plan that is constantly pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ in the new. And it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus that the kingdom is re-established. It's in Jesus that the family is restored and expanded. It's in and through Jesus that the whole of creation is being put right. It's being restored to be our promised homeland. Our future is full of hope and it is all because God never, ever, ever gives up. And it's an amazing reminder that with God, what he wants to do is far better than what you want to hear. Far better. That's why if you feel lost or isolated or full of regret, God isn't coming and saying to you, ach, it's not so bad. God is coming to you saying, I have plans for you to give you a future and a hope. 
I can deal with everything that you've done wrong in your life. I can heal every scar that's etched into your heart. I will hold you and love you and care for you no matter how many mistakes you've done. No matter how much you feel like you've let him down. The people here, the people here in in the days of Jeremiah would have felt that they had completely blown it. And maybe you feel like that too. Maybe you feel like with God you've blown it. You've blown your chance to become a Christian. You've you've messed up too many times. You've, you've, You've just let things slip by. You've let it slip through your fingers. You're not what you should have been. You've mucked it all up to you. God is saying to them and he's saying to you, you blowing it is not the end of the story. He has plans for you. A plan of restoration, a plan of salvation, and it's all centred on Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' death and through his resurrection, all of us can be healed, all of us can be restored, all of us can be brought home to the place where we belong, in God's family. That's what God promises us in his Son. That's what's been offered to you today. And that brings us to our last question, which is going to be very short. What does all this mean for your story? And that's maybe the most important question to ask of all. What does it all mean for you? Well, to help us think about that, I'm going to ask three questions. And I hope that you will see that the answer to all of these questions is no. The passages that we read this evening and everything we've been thinking about tonight present before us a scene of desperation and destruction. Our lives can often feel like that. Maybe nobody else knows, but sometimes you can just feel like... like Very few of us will ever live in a city in ruins, but um, we hope. But many of us can feel like our hearts are in ruins. Often we can look at the world around us and we can think, well, yes, materially we're in prosperity, spiritually we're in a mess. If you are confronted with desperation and destruction, like what we see here, does that mean that God has given up? That's the first question. Second question. In all the passages that speak about the exile, it's made absolutely clear that the reason the exile happened is because the people refused to listen to God. And one of the main reasons why they didn't listen to him is given to us in Lamentations 1 verse 5. You don't need to turn to it, I'll just read it to you. It says that in, those, in that verse, uh, it says that she took no thought of her future. The mess of the exile arose... Because the people stopped listening to God. And they stopped thinking about the future. They stopped listening. And they stopped thinking. And they only realized that they were doing it when it was too late. The second question is this. In terms of your salvation, are you going to do the same? 
And then the last question. The exile is the lowest point in the story of the Old Testament. But in the midst of that sorrow and heartbreak, there is this incredible message of hope. All of it pointing towards Jesus. All of it pointing to the free and wonderful restoration and healing that he accomplished through the cross and that he offers to everyone. The fact that you, whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, whatever you've done, you can be healed and restored. It's a great message that God has not given up, that God still has a plan. That plan centers on Jesus. He's come to bring salvation to all who trust in him. He's come to bring healing and hope to all who are lost. And so my last question is this. As Jesus offers that salvation again tonight, as Jesus holds out his hand in compassion and love, as Jesus promises a future and a hope for this life and for all eternity, do you think that he's talking to someone else? The answer to all of these questions is no. The story of the Old Testament is that God does not give up. The story of every Christian is that God does not give up. And he's brought you here tonight to hold out salvation to you and to invite you into his family. Why? Because he's not given up on you. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who does not give up on us. Please help us all to hear your voice.